You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. To connect with us or learn more, visit us online at ridgecrestbaptist.org. And so if you will stand with me as we stand upon the solid rock of God's word, let's hear this incredible story again. Luke 10, 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him. And bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set on him, or him on his own animal, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, it says, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He, the lawyer, said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I made a mistake in the first service and kept reading. I'm going to read it to you too. Listen to this, verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. The reason I believe the Lord wanted me to read that last verse is because if we're not loving well and serving others and using our freedom to serve others well, what we do is we tend to default back into backbiting, kind of the old way. And friends, we have Christ, and Christ is more than that. We can do better. And so let's pray and ask him to just grab our hearts this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for these passages of scripture, this wonderful story from our Lord Jesus and these amazing words of exhortation from the Apostle Paul. Lord, we want to hear these words, but we also want to go and do as you've commanded us. Thank you, Jesus, for this opportunity to be in your word and may it transform our hearts. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I'm going to ask a question, and actually you get to participate here. How many of you, and I know the wives, the moms in the room probably know this more than the dads but, and husbands, how many of you literally have a welcome mat at your front door? How many of you? Quite a few. So do you mean it? Do you mean it? 
Is it, is it just a, a piece of uh, a carpet or, or furniture? Did you put it out and, and did you mean it? Now, the reason I asked that question is because we were in a meeting this week and we were, somebody showed me a picture. Now, not a welcome mat, but if you go into these cute little like antique stores that don't sell antiques, they sell stuff that look like antiques, but they charge you a lot of money for. Not that I would know anything about this, Jenny. But anyway, those, those stores, love those stores. And you can buy these signs that say welcome on them, and they're like about as tall as I am, and they say welcome really big, like in white letters. And we have one of those out front at our house too, and the wind blows it down every single day. So we'll be sitting there watching TV, and we hear something, and it sounds like a, a shotgun going off. Oh, no, it's just our welcome sign crashing. All right. Well, here's this, the picture I saw. The picture I saw, somebody has made that same thing. Instead of saying welcome, it says unwelcome. And they put it in front of their door. Now, I was looking at that picture, and I said, you know, that's just like those people from the East Coast. You know, down in the South, down here in the Midwest, where we love people and we're just so, so hospitable, we would never, ever do that. Actually, the picture was taken in Republic, Missouri. Now, I don't know. If that's yours, we need to talk after church. You need to get right with Jesus, okay? But here's the deal. I don't know whose it is. But the truth is, is that... Many people, they are not welcoming, and they almost think that it's, it's a, a badge of honor to be unwelcoming. Well, this isn't the way of Christ. We know that. But I want us to think again about those welcome mats at our house. Do we mean it? Because my guess is the person who says unwelcome, I'm pretty sure they mean it. But we need to mean it. We want to be able to open our lives to other people and it not just be a, a, a word on, on a mat. It needs to be something that's flowing from our heart. I want to say this. I, I said it before. I'm going to say it again. Uh, this uh, series on neighboring, I haven't had any negative feedback. No one has sent me any emails that were ugly or text messages. I haven't had any conversations that were, you know, those kind of conversations you sometimes have where you can tell people really don't, I mean, they're not like disagreeing with you, but they're not exactly agreeing with you either, you know. I haven't had anything like that. But I've had this feeling that, that this talking about neighboring has met with just a little bit of resistance. Like, I don't know if I really uh, want to do this. I don't know if I really agree that this is the best thing to do. I, I don't want to be that, that kind of nosy neighbor, which is not at all what we're encouraging you to do at all. But here's the deal. I think if you've been feeling resistance, let me just suggest, and I am not, I don't have any right to say this is exactly what it is. But in my mind and in my heart, when I'm reading the word of God and I see something very clear like love your neighbor and then go and do likewise, and my heart is resisting that, that's me resisting the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. When, when the Spirit of God is moving, uh, many times my flesh, the old Jeremy, the old me, is going to push back against that. And I think, church, that we are going to have to realize that every one of those, those reasons we give for not being a neighbor, a, a neighbor who loves well and shows mercy, every time that we choose to just go right in the garage when we have an opportunity to be kind and gracious to those around us, many times we are grieving the Spirit in doing so. And as we hear the word today, my prayer is, is that all of us will see that a welcoming spirit is the genesis of spirit-led evangelism. Welcome. Because here's the deal. Many of you have a welcome mat in front of your front door, and many of your neighbors do too. Do they mean it?
If they do, this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity to be a loving neighbor, to reach out. And this command that we have here, go and do likewise, this is not a one-time thing. The verbiage here is of continual action. We need to constantly love one another and our neighbors. The command, this command to love your neighbor is truly a lifelong command, an action that needs to continue moving forward. So today, hear me, as we think about the rest of the year and quite frankly, all the way until Jesus comes back, uh, there's no limitation on this. There's no end date on it. We need to love our neighbors well and constantly look for opportunities to apply the truths of Scripture, the joy of the Lord that we've received from above with those who do not know Jesus. This is the imperative to go, just like Matthew 28. We are to go into the world. We are to go to the nations and share the love of Jesus, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he rose again on the third day. That is the most wonderful message, and we are called to share it with the nations and also with our neighbors. So how can we do this? Well, let's begin with the call to freedom. I want you to look at Galatians 5 first. We're going to look at what Paul says first. This is powerful. Now, just so you know, um, Paul is, I think in sports, if you say that a team is being chippy, I know in, in hockey, it means it's getting rough. Well, Paul is getting chippy in the book of Galatians. And if you don't believe me, if you have your copy of Scripture, I'm not going to read it. But look at verse 12 and tell me what you think about Paul being chippy. I can't imagine saying that from the pulpit, but there you have it. Now, why is he upset? Now, are you guys are you reading it? You see what I'm saying? Um, so so if, if, if my coffee is too strong for you this morning, just realize Paul has stronger coffee. All right? So when he's talking to these people and he says, you, I mean, he is pointing the finger at you. He is saying, you guys have been told the gospel. You've been uh, uh, enlightened with this wonderful truth that Jesus' love can save you. You've been made free by the gospel, and you're leaning on logic and the law more than leaning into the love of God. The book of Galatians is a wonderful book for us today because all generations default to being too heavy on law and too light on grace. And Paul says where there is too much legalism, there will be too little love. And that is not okay in the church. Now, look at verse 13. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the fresh, a flesh, but through love serve one another. Now, follow with me here. The freedom that he's talking about here is the freedom that we have in Christ. The negative is don't use that for the flesh. So let's just think about what the world does. When the world talks about the freedom that they have, they use it as an opportunity to do whatever they want to do. Whatever the heart desires, whatever gratifies the flesh, that's what sinful people do. I remember a preacher one time telling me that before Christ, he acted like a sinner. Sinners act like sinners. We shouldn't be shocked by that. But what we should be shocked of in our own hearts is when we've been given the freedom of Jesus Christ, and yet we're still indulging in those freedoms and pleasures of the flesh. And that is why so many of us are stuck in our spiritual life, because we've been given freedom to do something great, but instead of doing something great, we're using it for our own desires. The church 
today is tempted like never before to think that to follow the gospel means that we're free to be happy and free to get what we want when we come to church, when we come to small group, when we do something. It's all about me. No, Paul says, absolutely not. He says, your freedom, your freedom gives you the ability to love and serve one another. In fact, this word opportunity in the original language literally spells out the image of a base of operations. So let me put it to you like this. When God saved you, he made you like a supply depot of grace. God saved you, and yes, you're going to get to go to heaven. Amen? That sounds like a pretty good deal. Your sins nailed to the cross, you bear them no more. We should praise the Lord, right? We should know that we are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, and that is awesome. But when you were saved, you were not just saved so that you would go to heaven and be there forever. God wants to make you a supply depot of mercy and grace in this world. And the best way for you to imitate Jesus is to serve the world as Jesus served it and to give your best to them. It is sad in the church today that people bounce around churches so that they can find a church that gives them what's best. Let me tell you, that's backwards, perfectly backwards. We need to be in a church today. Church Ridgecrest, what God wants us to be is a church that's pouring out, that realizes that this wonderful grace that we've been given is for other people. We're just, a, we have it stored in us, but we want to give that away. The vision I talked about a couple weeks ago was a little vague, and it is vague because I'm still dreaming it and asking God to clarify it. But the, the, the gist of it is this. Ridgecrest is the place, in my view. God has given us the opportunity to be a supply depot of amazing grace for this community. And we can be a church that is different in this way, that we are not saying, come and see or come and let us give you a product we're not here to sell you on how good of a preacher I am or how good our music is. We're here to sell you on this, that you were saved for something more than sitting in a pew. You've been saved to be a dispenser of grace. Not the foul pollution that the world wants to dispense. We have something to give you. You are important to the ministry of this church. This whole idea of neighboring, what is it? Let me tell you what it is. It's so simple. Henry Nouwen, who one one was one of the great thinkers of the last generation, he talks about hospitality and neighborliness as opening up space, providing space for ministry. You learning how to be a good neighbor, it doesn't mean that you have to be the best baker. You know, your cookies don't have to be the best on the block. But what it does is by you being a kind person, your heart becomes open to that heart. This morning, early in the morning, we had our group here praying. And I was reminded, as I am every Sunday morning, as those prayer requests are made. Many of you have been in, in small group. If you haven't, shame on you. I'm just kidding. But anyway, um, if, if you've been in small group today, probably one of the things you did. I'm just joking. Lighten up, will you? Um, is you have prayer requests. True? You do prayer requests. Do you realize that every single one of your neighbors who doesn't have a small group, who doesn't have 
Brothers and sisters in Christ, when they go through a crisis and their heart is broken, many of them don't have anybody to pray for them and to be there with them. Why do you need to be a neighbor? Because there are so many people every week that are struggling that don't have what you have by default. You know, the last couple days, uh, I, my, my heart's been heavy about a number of different things, but there have been people around me, people praying for me, people that I could lean into. And listen, your neighbors who do not know Christ, they may have a family member, a brother, a sister, a mother, or a father, but do you realize as we get older, many of those people who are key emotional support persons in our lives pass away. And do you know how many people out there desperately need a friend, desperately need a sounding board, desperately need you filled with Jesus, loving well? You are a base of operations for gospel ministry. And let me just get on you for a minute. Some of us have been in church so long, and we've had good people to pray with and pray, that have prayed for us so long that we've forgotten what it's even like to be in a place where we don't have somebody there for us. Why am I telling you to love your neighbor? Because many, if not most, of your neighbors don't even have somebody to pray with. And even if they're not ready to pray, just someone to be there. Do you realize you can just have a listening ear? You can be someone that they feel comfortable with to talk about a family concern, a medical concern, and just be there for them. And when you say, I'll pray for you, they know you mean it. That's what your freedom's for, by the way. Your freedom is not to come to church and say, well, I like this about the sermon, or I like this about the vision, or I don't like this. I, 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 want, I like the music here. I don't like that, blah, blah, blah. Listen, that's verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Your freedom has not been given to you by Jesus so that you can be the critic extraordinaire and let me say again, nobody's done that to me. Nobody's, as far as I know, I mean, I, this place blows me away. I've been in smaller churches in the country where they had fried preacher for lunch every day. This place is great. All right? It isn't about that. But I'm thinking about your freedom. You've been given this freedom, Paul says, and, and it's just so simple. Serve, serve, serve. You know, in the first service, we, we sang that old hymn, Save, Save, Save. And let me just say this. If you're saved, save, save, will you serve, serve, serve? That's what Jesus has called us to do. It's a non-negotiable. It's an absolute. You've been freed from the curse of the law. Chapter 3, verse 13 of Galatians. Now start loving your neighbor well. Now let's go back over to Luke chapter 10. Because if you haven't forgotten... And we are looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan. So let me just focus on two quick things in two short verses. First, in verse 36, Jesus asks the question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And notice the answer. He said, the one who showed him mercy. I believe each one of you here today were born to be someone's neighbor. Now it's time to become a neighbor. Now, what does that mean? Well, that's why we've been in the Good Samaritan. We're trying to define it. That's what the lawyer says, you know. Uh, Jesus tells him how to inherit eternal life. But then he goes, well, tell me what this neighbor business is about. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, if you're keeping score, that's the, the verse of Scripture. And so the lawyer is wanting some commentary, all right, 
a little bit of running commentary on what Leviticus 19.18 means. So Jesus, in the tradition of the rabbis, they called it a midrash. Now, I'm telling you today, I bet it's happened six times. By the way, I guess I'm your rabbi. People come up to me and say, I've got a question about the Bible or about this or about that. And here I am trying to unpack what that is very quickly. That's what rabbis do. That's what we're supposed to do as spiritual leaders is to be familiar with the word and that way we can explain it. Well, the lawyer in one sense, that's what he's doing. It would be easy to look at this and, I, you know, there are some hints here that maybe he was being a little bit um, on the chippy side himself. But I don't know. I, I, I do wonder if it's just okay for us to look at the lawyer as a person who was trying to find the truth. I mean, wouldn't you hate it if you came in here to find the truth and everybody assumed you had ulterior motives? That would that'd be bad. What if you're in here and God just is trying to, to, to grow you up and to show you something special? I hope that's true. And notice the question, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor? Remember the story? You have this guy, gets beat up. Three people come to his rescue, or so it would seem. The priest goes on the other side. The Levite goes on the other side. The Samaritan, the one who is the least likely in the minds of the average Hebrew person of the day, he's the one that comes and shows mercy. And notice the word. Which of these three do you think, and underline this word, proved, proved to be a neighbor. Actually, that word just means became. Which one of these three individuals became. Listen, there's nothing to prove here, brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't have to have more Bible passages memorized or more years in church. You just need to become who you are in Christ. The Samaritan became a living representation of God's mercy and love. And let me ask you this, when is the last time that the same could be said for you and me? That we became Christ in the flesh in a sense, that, that our love and our activity uh, made a difference in someone's life. A neighbor is proven through mercy. Mercy, that's the whole idea. Jesus shows us that neighboring is about being a person of mercy. Now, in missions, we talk about being a person of peace. Now, many times to reach a culture, there'll be this, this go-between, a person of peace. Let me say, in our culture, uh, persons of peace are necessary, but we really need persons of mercy. Because so many hurting people are out there, and they need to understand that the love that Jesus has put in our hearts, this love that is a, a, a verb, I think mercy is, is, a, is a verb here too. We are pouring it out. We are actively giving people the love of Jesus. You know, this weekend, as, as I was getting things together a couple times a month, you know, make sure the checkbook's in good, in good condition. Um, the Lord's checkbook, I want to tell you, he never has a deficiency when it comes to mercy. He never, ever, ever is lacking funds. Every one of his entries in that checkbook is written in red. It's the blood of Jesus. We have the richest source of mercy because we have Jesus. Dane Ortland, in his wonderful book, Gentle and Lowly, says that Jesus does not give us middle-class mercy, not at all. His love and grace are not middle-class. In other words, he is rich in mercy, and he wants to share it with us. And so that's the question. Even though we haven't been as merciful as we could be, we need to realize that Jesus is merciful to the max. He is here today, and I hope convicting your heart and mine that we can do better with mercy. One more thing. Verse 37b, 
do likewise. It says right there, and Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, I bragged on the lawyer a moment ago, gave him the benefit of the doubt, and said that he probably was maybe, possibly, just a seeker of truth. But his bias comes out here in the end of the story because when the answer comes from the lawyer, he can't even bring himself to say it was the Samaritan who did the good deed. His cultural bias causes him to gloss over the fact that the priest and the Levite are the bad guys in this story, and the good guy is a Samaritan who was culturally considered inferior. That's not okay. God never sanctioned that kind of attitude. The Jews and the Samaritans had their differences, but look how Jesus deals with it. He does not tell the woman at the well um, that she's a, a horrible person, but he does tell her that her theology ain't right. You can love someone well and still not agree with what they're saying. And Jesus shows us how to do that. And don't we need some of them skills in the world today? Amen? Need to go to Washington. Show them that. Show them how we can disagree and still love somebody. Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be something if that's how we were in all of our gospel interactions? The Samaritan was the one who showed mercy. Let me just say the lawyer's bias shows us that bias is the outward manifestation of heart decay. If there is any time in our lives that we are not loving well, I'm here to tell you what that means is, what that shows is, is that there's something wrong in us. You know, one of the things I've learned this last month in going through this idea of being a good neighbor, good and bad, okay? So a good neighbor, for many of us, our default setting is, is someone that doesn't cause a lot of trouble in the neighborhood. Like, like a good neighbor, by the modern definition, doesn't require us to show any love at all. We just have to be pretty much invisible. Now, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, a good neighbor was someone who baked the cookies. And, and, and you know, you could have come over and actually watch your house if you were going to be gone, if there was an emergency. 60 years ago, that's what a good neighbor was. Today, a good neighbor means something else. So most of us, we would say we're a good neighbor, even if we're not doing anything at all. And we would say, as long as I'm not a bad neighbor, which you can define that however you want, but that's pretty easy, being a rotten neighbor. Let me tell you, that's not our problem, church. Problem isn't that you're... Uh, a good neighbor or a bad neighbor. The fact is, is that you're a non-neighbor. You're, you're not good or bad. You're just not even there. And, and that kind of apathy is the most unloving thing we could do. Forget good and bad. Stop being a non-neighbor, a non-entity, a no-name person on your street. That is where we all have room to grow. Don't sit here and worry about being good or bad. May God begin to convict you that the problem is you don't even exist. And those people matter. And our love, the love of Jesus flowing from us matters. Mercy is important. If you have a toggle switch, on-off switch on mercy, I want to tell you something. God didn't put it there. If you're not loving well, if you've turned that switch off, if you're not being merciful to your neighbor, don't you think for a minute that God flipped that switch. Your flesh flipped the switch. And today the Holy Spirit is trying to flip it back on and to get you going again because we all know that there is more to what we could do. Again, the conviction of the Spirit is needed here. 
Christ is saying, you go and do likewise. What is he telling us to do? Is he telling us to go out and share the Roman road with five people today uh, before the football game? That'd be great if you want to do that. I have no problem with that. But that's not exactly what he's saying. This passage is encouraging us to go and share love and mercy as we go. To do the right thing. To be there for people. You know, the most immediate need or challenge that we're giving you is, is to just pray for a neighbor or to pray for your neighbors. Yeah, we'd love for you to fill out that form and get the names of everybody, but that'll take some time. Come to our neighboring conference on March 5th. It's on a Saturday and learn some skills here. We all need to learn more skills on how to be hospitable. But you're not going to do any of those things. You're not going to prioritize this. Unless you hear Jesus saying, Go and do likewise. Your pastor, your elders, your deacons, your Sunday school leaders, small group leaders, we cannot convict you here. Only the Holy Spirit can. But I believe the text is very clear. There is no wiggle room. There's no uh, side exit. There are only the words of Jesus. Go. And do likewise. That's our job. Not just the rest of this year, but until Jesus comes again. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For additional resources, to learn more about us, or get connected, visit RidgecrestBaptist.org.